0: But well, we look this evening to Articles 9 and 10 of our Canons of Dort as summaries of God's Word. I'd like to read with you first from a portion of His Word, specifically the last part of Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28, continuing through the end of the chapter, a well loved chapter, one of the most well known and quoted passages of the Bible being the first verse, but it's important that we see that verse in the context that it, in which it was given, because as comforting as it is to quote that verse, it's infinitely more comforting when we look at it in the context. Now, just a reminder of where we are in the broader context, uh, we're in the section of Romans that reminds us of the grace that we receive in Christ. In the chapter before this, Paul grievously marvels, if I can put it that way, at how God's law reveals our calling to turn away from sin and to embrace the Lord, and yet he stands in awe of how, no matter how much he longs to do what the law commands, he finds that he turns away from it. Though he desires to embrace God's law, yet he continually violates it. And it leads him to confess, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But the answer, of course, is Christ. Christ is the one who delivers us. And then he goes into a a discussion about how there are two paths before us. Really a Psalm 1 discussion. There is the path of the flesh, and then there is the path of the Spirit. And if we are in Christ, then we will begin living by the Spirit continually. And if we are living by the Spirit, then that shows that we are sons of God and that we are brothers of Christ, that we are co-heirs with Him, which is an amazing thing even to consider. And it's that which brings us to this passage. Starting at verse 28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day. uh, All the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What a comfort. Now it's in the light of that comfort and summarizing that comfort that Articles 9 and 10 of our canons speak to us, saying this same election, which was defined in our text last week, this same election took place not on the basis of foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or of any other good quality or disposition, as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith, for the purpose of faith of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on. Accordingly, election is the source of each of the benefits of salvation. Faith, holiness, and the other saving gifts, and at last eternal life itself, flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. As the apostle says, he chose us, not because we were, but so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. But the cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve his choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as a condition of salvation, but rather involves his adopting certain particular persons from among the common mass of sinners as his own possession. As scripture says, when the children were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Also, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, through Christ his Son, we just sang from Psalm 69, In full assurance of thy grace, to thee my prayers ascend. In thine abounding love and truth, O God, salvation sin. Now, do we really believe that that is a request God will honor? Can we have assurance that God will send his grace to those who ask? Or does he reserve his help for those who are worthy? Does God help those only, as the saying goes, who help themselves? Or does he help those who trust in him through Jesus regardless of their ability? Which In short, is ultimate, God's resolve to save us, God's intent, or man's effort to obtain salvation. It's a question really of not just which comes first, first, but which is worthy. Does God's decision to save his people rest on any quality, desire, decision, or action of the people themselves? Does his election, his decision to save, rest on God's foreknowledge of us and what we would do and how we would act? That is something that we can understand. If I had a puppy that I wanted to give away, I probably wouldn't just give it to just anyone, right? Right? I would put it out there that I had this puppy and those who responded, I would check and see who among them would be able to receive this gift aright. I wouldn't give it to someone who didn't have the resources for caring for a dog or didn't have the time to devote to this puppy or, or maybe had a history of mistreating animals. No, I'm going to do what I can to ensure that this puppy goes to a place where it will be appreciated and cared for well. And if we would take that kind of care in the placement of a dog, how much more, we think, would would God take care where he bestows his gift of salvation, of eternal life, of glory? Wouldn't we expect him to choose as his own, to choose as recipients of his son's salvation, only those who would use it aright? And so that's what many people throughout the ages have thought. They explained God's election by appealing to the qualities of those who are chosen. He chose those who would use it aright. He chose those who would most magnify His glory and and most demonstrate His goodness. But Scripture teaches us something very different. Scripture teaches us that there is no one who in and of themselves will use his salvation aright. And therefore election cannot rest even a little bit in the worthiness of those who receive it. Instead, it is God's election which forms the solid foundation of salvation itself along with everything that flows from it. And so that's the theme that we consider this evening, how election forms the solid foundation of salvation. And as we begin to study that, we see, first of all, how God pursues the elect entirely. He pursues the elect entirely because of His grace. You may note that really we're beginning this evening where we were last week, and that's with the why question. Why would God choose to save those whom He saves? Last week we saw that God has revealed no complete answer to the why question. He doesn't provide a checklist that explains why he chose this one and why he didn't choose that one. He hasn't offered to justify his his decisions in our minds. But God has told us some of the things on which election does not rest. And that's really where we need to begin this evening. If we're to see how election forms the foundation of our salvation, understanding what he hasn't done here. Now, the Canons of Dort, in a companion section that we didn't read, um, kids, you know that this document called the Canons of Dort has four sections, um, five heads of doctrine, but two of them are combined. And each of those sections includes not just a selection of articles, statements of doctrine, but also um, some rejections of error, where they state the errors that were being taught in the early 1600s, which they are explicitly rejecting. And included in those rejections of error are a few false views of election, which are helpful for us to understand. One of them, for instance, is that the view that God's election decree is to save all men who ultimately will believe and persevere in faith. In other words, God decided to save whoever would choose to trust in Christ and to continue trusting in Christ, looking to him as the sufficient Savior and continuing in that confession. So in that view, election is general and unspecific. It doesn't refer to particular men by name, but instead it defines the path by which salvation will happen, and it says whoever follows that path, they're elect, Right? Another view is similar to that. It says that election is God's decree to count faith as sufficient for obtaining God's favor. So in other words, God requires perfection, but he decrees in his election decree that, that whoever trusts in Jesus, he'll count that as enough. He'll say, "That's good enough. You don't have to be absolutely perfect in all that you've done. As long as you trust in Jesus, I'll make up for the rest. It's like, you know, if you tell your, your son who wants a, a new bicycle, you know what, if you, if you manage to earn the first $50, I'll pay the rest. Right? That view of election, again, it's general and unspecific. It doesn't believe that God uh, chose specific people, but rather that he laid out a path. If you trust in Jesus, that'll be enough. And a third view is that election is God's decree to choose for himself all whom he foresees will trust in Jesus and persevere in that faith. So, so here the emphasis is there are particular people, but they make the choice. And God, being outside of time, he's able to look down the halls of history to come and see who's going to freely choose to trust in Christ. And he says, well, that one's mine, that one's mine. Oh, huh, look at that, that one's mine too. What holds all of these views of election together, and these were all popular when the canons of Dort were written, obviously, but you know what, they remain popular in Protestant churches today. And what holds them together... Is the conviction of the responsibility and the freedom of sinful men. They all recognize that sinful men need to be saved. They need what only Jesus can provide. But they regard men as sufficient in themselves to choose to turn to Christ, to choose to hold on to Him by faith. So men, in one way or another, end up taking center stage. They freely choose to entrust themselves to Christ. They freely choose to remain in that path of salvation. And God, God's just responding. He's either laying out the path and saying, this is the way to salvation if you would choose it. Or, or he's saying, you know what, you're mine because you chose Christ. God may set the rules. He may determine the path. He may look down into the future to see what's going to happen but it's man who makes the crucial, ultimate decision. And implicitly, that means that man's the one who has the final say. Man is the one who gets the final glory. But that's not what Scripture shows us. It pleases our American sense of self-determination. It pleases us in our pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality but it does not fit what scripture shows us, scripture shows us that it is God who calls the shots what did we read in Psalm 146 put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation right, don't trust men they'll let you down every single time including the man you see in the mirror Every single time I will fail me. But God is sovereign and good and entirely trustworthy. It is God who determined how men would be saved, what conditions might must be met, what needed to be accomplished, what path must be walked in order to obtain salvation. And He also determined, Scripture is very clear, who would be saved and when and how. Not generically, setting the parameters that anyone can choose. Not responsively, seeing who will do this and then saying, I guess that one's mine. But before anyone was born, before anyone did good or bad, right or wrong, God chose particular individuals from the common mass of mankind who deserved to be condemned and said, this one will be mine. And here's exactly how I'm going to make that happen. Romans 8 makes God's sovereignty in salvation abundantly clear. We justly love Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We love that, but notice what it says. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. He's intimately involved with their lives. He turns all the little details for their good. Obviously, the the great things when you find that perfect man or that perfect woman or when God gives you that child or God leads you into that career. Yes, of course, but also the hard things. Also the valleys, also the struggles, also the stumbles. God works all of that for your good. Who love Him and who are called according to... To his purpose. Notice that means that it's not just their love that he's responding to, it's his call. His call is the reason they love him. His call is the pre, pre-existing condition. And they're called according to his purpose. God decided whom to choose, whom to call, and also why. He determined the end, the purpose, the goal of their coming to him. It is these who've been chosen by God, whose future he has determined, whose ultimate end he's decreed. And God is in charge of absolutely every detail to make sure it happens. In Romans 11, God calls these elect his remnant, the ones who remain his own. And there Paul tells us that this remnant is chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you hear that? The remnant, the elect, they are chosen by grace, by a favor that is unearned. God's decision to choose his people doesn't rest at all on us, on what we have done, on what we will do, on on our wisdom, our insight, our strength, none of it. It's by grace that God has chosen us. That is the end of it. God is the reason. If we would believe God, and we must then we must confess that He alone is sovereign over our salvation. The determination of whether this one or that one will be saved rests not in the person Himself, not in His parents, His church, His actions, His circumstances, not in anything which that person controls. It rests entirely and only in God who chooses. We cannot take Scripture seriously and yet believe that anyone's salvation rests in Him. Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He chose. Now, he's talking to the apostles, yes. That's a truth that is reflected throughout Scripture about God's people. He chose every one of us. He determined how we would be drawn to him, and also what fruit we would bring forth as a result. One of the clearest statements of that is is Second Timothy 1 verse 9. There we read that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It was God who not only saved us, but called us. So the initiative is entirely with him. And his decision was not at all because of our works, what we would choose to do. It was the purpose and grace of God that resolved to choose us. And he made that decision before the ages began. That, my friends, is the one foundation of our relationship with God. And that means that God's decree of election is ultimate. Think about it. Young people. God is the one who determined what would be necessary for us, sinful people, to be saved. He determined that we must be regenerated. Our sin-hardened hearts softened to recognize our need for him. He determined that we needed to be called by means of the word proclaimed and the Holy Spirit working to apply that word to us. He determined that we would have to put faith in Christ and that we would receive that faith from His Spirit. He determined that through that faith we would be justified, and we would begin by the work of the Spirit to be sanctified, a work that would continue throughout our life in this world. He determined that we would need to be discipled in the church, learning from those who had been walking that path of discipleship for long before we came. He determined that we would struggle against our sin all our lives, So that we would learn more and more to trust not in us, but only in Christ. And having chosen the way of salvation, he chose the recipients. He chose individuals by name, one by one, from out of a fallen race, all of whom deserved destruction. And then God decreed to send his Holy Spirit to begin collecting, gathering each and every one of his elect without fail. That means that God alone deserves all the praise and all the glory for our salvation. Apart from God's decree, not one of us would or could be saved. But because He is the merciful God and because He is the sovereign God, we are. Psalm 40, or Isaiah 46, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my good purpose. Only God can make a plan that never, ever, ever fails. Whatever plans we make, some of you are in business, you make these beautiful plans for how the job is going to go, you make this proposal for, for what it's going to involve. But you know, you always build in that extra cost. Why? Because you know as soon as you open up that job, as soon as you begin the project, you're going to find new things. The plan is going to fall apart to some degree and you're going to have to rebuild it. But not God. He knows all the details. He knows all the problems that are going to be encountered. He knows all the struggles and the strife and He has incorporated that all into His plan. He says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. There is absolutely none who can thwart the plans of our God. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. That's what God has determined to do. We are Zion. We are Israel. And God has determined each member of Israel and how they will be brought in and how they will be sanctified and how they will be used for the good of the whole. And no one can thwart that plan. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That is a comfort beyond compare because if you know yourself, you know that you'll make a mess of it if it's up to you. Right? At some point, you're going to fall down. You're going to stumble. You're going to fail to do what you've, what you've been decreed to do. Some of you notice that when we read the Nicene Creed, or when we recite the Nicene Creed, I read it. It's not because I haven't learned the Nicene Creed. It's because I know myself. And because we normally use the Apostles' Creed, I will mess it up unless I read it. It's kind of embarrassing. But I know myself. Right? If it depended, if salvation depended, if the good of God's kingdom depended at all on us, it'd be a mess. But because it rests on the sovereign power and decree and outworking of God, we can be utterly confident. And therefore, we must confess that election is the foundation of our salvation. All our hope begins and ends with his decree... He chose us. He directs our lives. He is providing all that is necessary for us to receive what is ordained. And so that's our second point, our final point. God promises the elect everything necessary for our salvation. That means He didn't just make a, a vague decree. You're going to be saved somehow. Not sure how that's going to work out, but you're going to... No, He not only determines who will be saved, but all of the individual details. And he starts with the goal. In electing a people for himself, God decreed from the start his goal. And we need to see that so that we might see the fruit of God's election. You see, sometimes we might not put it this way, but we we think... We act as though God's goal in election is simply getting us to heaven. Some of the old gospel songs, as much as we love them, that's the impression they give. I walk in the garden alone while the dew is still, you know, and there's this idea that I just, I get to heaven and I get to be with the Lord. By the way, that song's not really about me and Jesus. It's reflecting Mary walking in the garden and encountering the resurrected Lord. But... But we take it as though it means that God's goal is just that I get out of this broken and sinful world and I get to go and be with Him. And that is part of His goal, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is what we read right here in Romans 8. He says that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's his goal. Not just that we get to heaven, not just that we escape a broken world. His goal is that we might be the true brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be conformed in body and in soul to His perfect, holy, righteous image. That we might thereby properly reflect the character and the being of our God. And that we might thereby fulfill God's original intent for mankind. That we be bearers of His image in all the creation. Understand. Understand, children. Heaven's not the end. At some point, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to cleanse this whole creation. And heaven and earth, Revelation tells us, will become one again, as they were at the beginning. We will see God face to face. We'll be able to walk and talk with Jesus the way Adam and Eve walked with him at the start in the garden. And we will bodily, physically, work and live and... Endure in the creation reflecting His image perfectly throughout the world. That'll be amazing. That's the goal. That's the end game. And God's decree includes absolutely everything necessary to get us there. He didn't just predestine us to the goal. He also ordained all of the steps. Look at what comes next. Verse 30. And those whom He predestined He also called. He Established the goal that we would become the sons and daughters of God, that we would become the brothers and sisters of Christ, that we would reflect Him. And so then He called us, an act done within history, an act performed by the faithful preaching of the Word and applied by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. And those whom He called, He also justified, having given us not just the gospel, but the faith to receive it, He caused us to be joined to Christ by faith so that we are in his sight as perfectly righteous as Christ is righteous for us. As though we had never sinned or been sinners. And having justified us, he also glorified. He turned defiled sinners into perfected saints, transforming over time. The life and walk and thoughts and desires of his people. Notice the past tense. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. None of us here yet is glorified. And though, if we have faith in Christ, we are Justified, and we have been called, when he made that decree, we hadn't been called or justified or glorified. And yet he speaks it in the aorist tense, which is an absolutely complete tense in the Greek. Because having been decreed by God, it is as absolutely certain at the moment that he decrees it as it ever will be. It can't be undone, it can't be thwarted, it can't be undermined because God himself decreed to do it. We find a similar description in 2 Thessalonians 2 where he says that God chose us. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose us, elected us to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit, through the truth of His Word, unto the end that we might bear the glory of Christ. And He works out every single detail. He causes the exact Word to be proclaimed at the exact time to fit the circumstances you've just gone through to really resonate so that you see your need for Christ. And that recognition of your need is joined by the faith that he has just put in your heart so that you will latch on to Christ with a living trust that you will never let go of. And then he begins working to transform the life that he has just saved. God's decree includes all of those steps, all of those details necessary to get us to the goal of reflecting Christ. And he fulfills those steps with the perfect power of the Almighty God. We've heard and we love Ephesians 2, which begins by telling us how dead we are, how powerless, how hopeless in ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, when we weren't worthy of it, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What God ordained, He also accomplishes in His perfect time by His perfect power. When you were His enemies, when you were dead in your sin, God reached out, God transformed, God imposed grace, God drew you to Himself and brought you into life by Christ. That's how you entered salvation. That's how you go through the path of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You could attain that goal only by God working in you and through you and around you. And with the perfect sovereign power that only God has, that's what He's done. This is the mighty gift of God, the Holy Spirit applying the perfect sovereign power of Christ according to the perfect decree of God in election. He decrees it all, he does it all. And so powerfully does he fulfill his will that all of history bends to obey it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Ponder that. All things. Being born in a Christian home. Hearing the Bible from an early age, certainly. Sitting through countless sermons, Sunday school classes, catechism, VBS. Absolutely. But also, all your sins, your rebellions, your stupidity. He works to demonstrate the absolute misery from which you need to be rescued. All your offenses and the broken relationships. He uses to demonstrate to you the brokenness of your relationship with him so that you'll long for restoration and renewal. All of the trials and the tribulations you've known, he uses to demonstrate to you your weakness and the absolute folly of trusting in yourself. All of the scars and painful missteps, he uses to demonstrate to you the power of the one who rescued you from everyone and turned even those hard things into good things. Nothing that the elect ever know or feel or endure, nothing is wasted. God uses absolutely every single bit of it. For our good. We might not feel it or see it or know it at the time. We might weep and struggle and grieve. But God is using every single thing for your good. That's stunning. That is a sovereignty we can't even wrap our minds around. And yet that's what God is doing in the life of every single one of his people. Not just to draw us to himself. But to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And God's plan cannot be thwarted. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? None can ultimately stand against us. We know that people do. We know that this world absolutely hates those who trust in the word of God. We know that Satan prowls about like a hungry lion seeking to devour. But look at his answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And He does. He gives us comfort in our grief and rescue from our struggles. He restores us even from the darkness that rose up from within us. And those hard times that we thought would be the absolute end of us, he uses to bring us right into his bosom. And then someone accuses us, or our own heart accuses us. Surely not you, not the likes of you. But he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If God has chosen you, if God has said, this one is mine, Satan is powerless, his words fall flat and meaningless. And likewise, your old nature joining him to accuse and a jealous world that wants to somehow sully you so that they can feel better about themselves. Their words are powerless and false because God has chosen in Christ to justify you. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Satan says not worthy, Jesus says worthy in me. You say, could he possibly, Jesus says he did. And then he goes through that amazing list. What is going to keep us from God? What is going to tear us away? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And we experience these things. Certainly Paul did, but we do in various and sundry ways. But he says, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he uses all of these hard things, all of these things that would otherwise tear us apart, and he uses them to draw us closer to God and to mold us into his image. And so he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ. You see, none of that surprised him. Not the hard diagnosis, not the betrayal by a friend, not the rumor, not the temptation, not the backsliding. None of it surprised him. He ordained to use all of it to draw us to him. That's how complete, that's how absolute his election is. And that is how absolutely we can trust him. It all rests on God. If it rested on us, we'd be lost. We'd be hopeless. But because it rests on Him, we can be confident even when the storm is blowing, even when it's so dark we can't see our hand in front of our face, we can be confident that He sees, that He knows, that He factored it in and that He's using it all. So it rests in us simply to believe, to trust, to refuse to doubt that God knows what He's doing and to tell God others. What an amazing God we serve. Amen. Father, we stand in awe of your love for us. We see all our flaws, our faults, our weakness, our failure. all the missed opportunities. And yet you tell us that you see it too. And you've ordained to use even that to draw us closer to you. To turn us, to mold us, to shape us, to renew us, to make us into the beloved brothers and sisters of Christ whom you have chosen, whom you will use by whom you will be glorified. We shake our heads in wonder. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you, that you would empower us to rest confident in you, and that you would fill us with such wonder at your sovereign love and care for us that we would be unable to be silenced in confessing you before the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.